All right, looks like we're at 6.30, so we can go ahead and get started. Greetings to the gentlemen online. Thanks for joining us. For all of you who made the trek, let's open with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, as the seed of your word is spread among us, may it find good soil in our hearts and bear up abundantly, granting much fruit. We pray that your blessing would be upon us through your Holy Spirit, for we know that we cannot understand your word apart from him and his gifts. We know that in your word you give us things old and things new, and we thank and praise you for that, and especially for for your word that directs to your Son, who is indeed the word himself, that in him we might find full forgiveness and full reconciliation with you now and unto the ages of ages. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So last week we had um, transitioned from Mark's gospel and the introduction of the parables there to the parallel section in Matthew's gospel, the introduction of the parables there. Matthew going into far more depth and detail as he often does. And if you'll turn to Matthew 13, that's where we left off. And you'll no doubt recall that we skipped over the parable of the sower. Again, Mark 4 begins the parable of the sower. So we took a look at that. Uh, In fact, Mark 4 and Matthew 13 follow the same essential outlines. And just as Mark 4 deals with the purpose of the parables, Matthew does so just in a more expansive and poetic way. That's where we spent most of our time. Well, that in tangents last week. If you'll just look at me, uh, look with me at verse 16, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. Now, the emphasis on seeing, you can find it in Mark, but it seems to be a little more amplified in Matthew. And that's because one of the sub-themes of Matthew is going to be this hiddenness and revelation. We're going to see that pop up in some of the parables, the smaller parables that Matthew includes that Mark didn't. So when we see sight or um, discovery of secrets or this kind of, or mysteries, this kind of thing, um, that's a, a, a Matthean emphasis. Verse 17, for truly, or really Jesus leads off with the amen. This is part of the poetics that's lost in the ESV is, where it says, truly, it's amen. One reason to favor the New King James or King James Version. So it would really read more literally, amen. For I say to you, many prophets and righteous people is a fine translation. Long to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Now, these are the Christians of the Old Testament. These are the prophets and righteous people. You might even say the church and ministry. Why did they long to see and not see, long to hear but not hear? Not for the same reason, not because they reject Christ and thus are blinded and made deaf, but rather because these things were hidden until now and they are they have been and are being revealed in the person of jesus 
They all longed to see his day and longed for the revelation of these mysteries. That's the essential point that Jesus is making here. Mm -hmm. Would you rather be an Old Testament Christian or a New Testament Christian? New. New. That was spelled out as plain as can be, although I didn't preach on it. I just had too much to preach on in too little time. In the account uh, on Sunday with John the Baptist, where Jesus says, I tell you of those born among women, uh, there is none greater than John the Baptist, but whoever is uh, under the reign or kingdom of heaven is greater than he, or even, even more poignantly, Jesus says the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Do you remember this? It's not to say that John is outside of the kingdom, that John is somehow not a Christian. That completely doesn't fit the context where Jesus is praising John the Baptist and calling him a prophet and saying he's the greatest. What Jesus is doing there is what he does in many places, and that's he's making a great bifurcation from that which came before to that which comes now in him. Everything changes. So no longer, I mean, to just grasp hold of Jesus' own words, no longer born of woman, but born of water and spirit, born of the church, if you will, no longer born of woman, that would be concretely of Eve, but now born of the new Eve, which is the church. So that's that's what Jesus is doing. I'm filling in more words than he speaks and sort of revealing more than he reveals at that time, but that's what he's after. So does that mean that John is considered like the very end of the Old Testament? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of part of the beauty of the canon. You know, I'm I'm one of these that I buy into. I really do buy into this, that the Holy Spirit organize the canon and organize the ordering of the books within that canon. Um, if you ask me to prove it, I'll say prove otherwise. <laughs> but if you, uh, if you look back at the way I'm too far, if you look back at the way the old Testament ends. Okay. So, and this is really apropos for uh, <clears throat> Advent. Um, turned, turn to the, End of your Old Testament, Malachi. I'll know I've really gotten old when I refer to him as Malachi, the Italian prophet. I've got all these stored up. When I get really old, they're coming out. All right, so... Malachi and, and chapter four, verse five, for those of you who don't have a Lutheran study Bible. <clears throat> okay. And what do we see here at the end of the Old Testament? Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That's the end. Who does Jesus say is this Elijah, but John the Baptist? See, he's the, and in all the scriptures, I mean, this is a point too. What other prophet do the scriptures prophesy about? 
uh, obviously they prophesy about Jesus, who's the great prophet, the capital P prophet, the prophet like Moses who comes after, who is greater than Moses. But if you think of the scriptures, there's, I mean, I can't think of any, maybe there's some obscure or minor thing somewhere along the line, but I can't think of any, certainly none that, uh, have the magnitude of what Malachi has here done. And by the way, Isaiah prophesies about him too. He's oft quoted and usually quoted by Matthew. And Isaiah prophesies of this same, we heard that in the Old Testament text from this last Sunday, um, the voice that proclaims in the wilderness, prepare a way. That's this prophet who comes and says these very things in the wilderness, John the Baptist. So, Okay, so this is what Jesus means, is that John the Baptist is the apex of the Old Testament era. He is uh, the highest of the high in the Old Testament era, and precisely because he has this honor that he is the forerunner of the Christ and the transition between the two great epochs. Okay, So then that is those born of women versus those born of the kingdom not making a statement of who's Christian and who's not, just what epoch do you belong to? Okay, so that's what we're after then when we are in Matthew 13, and bear with me, I didn't save my place, but in Matthew 13, where Jesus then is making this fascinating and tantalizing distinction um, at verse 16, blessed are your eyes for they see, your ears for they hear. Now that's belief thus far, that's belief contrasted with unbelief. But now he takes it a step in a different direction and a step further. Amen, for I say to you, many prophets and righteous people, many prophets and saints longed to see what you see and did not see it and hear what you hear and did not hear it. Yeah. Yeah. I have a, oh, thank you so much. Hey, Gordon, yeah, what's going on? Um, going back to your, um, the the Jesus talking about John, um, where the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Um, since he was alive at this time and, you know, when Jesus was alive, is there like a cutoff date? <laughs> Um, you know, Easter morning or um... uh, probably probably where um, John himself says, I, I, he must increase. I must decrease. That's probably the the as close as you get to a date. So John is saying my ministry has run its course. The Lord's ministry is at hand. That would effectively be the transition. I, su- I suppose if you, uh, an- another acceptable argument, I think, would be at the baptism of Jesus. That's where he receives the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and uh, the, rev- the Trinity is revealed, and he goes off to battle the evil one, and it's the start of his work and ministry proper. So that might be another fine point at which you could put it. Mm-hmm. I, and, you know, important to not mince too finely here, because he could point to other valid points in time too. I just think that those would be the most compelling. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. That's, that's one of the difficult things, even in Jesus own prophetic statements 
Um, so at the end of Matthew, we're not going to get there, but that fifth discourse, remember we talked about the five discourses of Matthew last, the fifth discourse is on judgment. One of the things that's almost impossible to do is sort out the difference between these three events, the crucifixion, the destruction of the temple and 70 and the great suffering of the people and the end of the world. Jesus actually stands in the long line of the prophets in doing this very thing, collapsing these events together into one almost indistinguishable image. It's also why um, when the Old Testament prophets are prophesying of the coming of Christ, they're almost always collapsing together both of his comings, his incarnation and his final coming. And that's really kind of what you see Malachi doing where yeah, I mean, what is what is he coming to do? Elijah is coming before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And that great and awesome day already is kind of judgment language. And he's going to reconcile children and fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So their, their collapsed is Jesus coming, um, what we would say like in humility and his coming in glory or his first and second coming. They're almost collapsed there, aren't they? I mean, not to say that Jesus doesn't come in judgment, and that's maybe an underappreciated aspect, too, is, I mean, Jesus' final pronunciations are of doom to Jerusalem. Uh, so, you know, sometimes sometimes I think we, we tend to, for good reason, with good intention, we want to emphasize the gospel aspect and the merciful aspect of Jesus' coming, and, and right on. I mean, no quibble with that, no quibble even with that being sort of like the emphasis but he does indeed come proclaiming swift judgment upon that generation, and it does come to pass upon that generation. So there is a there is a profound judgment that befalls God's people at that time, like unto which it never befell them in any other age, because the temple has now been destroyed for how long? One 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 and a half generations? Like when the temple of Solomon was destroyed and it was quickly rebuilt? No. Going on almost 2000 years, it stood in rubble and ruin. I mean, that from an old Testament perspective, from a Yahweh centric perspective, I mean, that's utter devastation, like, like has never been seen before. And again, where are the, where are the, the Jewish people today? It's only just a political specter to think that the group that's kind of reformed in 1948 is any meaningful connection. It's not, um, so, so the people themselves kind of devastated and dispersed all over in the Lord's judgment. And why? Because he came into his own and his own received him not. So, yeah, all those themes tie in and, and we miss them if we just see Jesus as the grace guy. And um, if we just see him coming in humility as if it's only humility. We could make the same mistake, I suppose, if we said he's coming in glory and we think only in terms of justice or destruction because he's coming also to have mercy upon his people. So, okay, don't want to belabor that. But do we, Gordon, did that help somewhat or whoever's question I was answering? Help, hopefully. Um, were there any other hands or any other questions? Doing okay? Okay. So, yeah, that's that's what we make then of 16 and 17 is that we are given to see things as New Testament Christians that the prophets and saints of old long to look into. It's one of the things that American evangelicalism has just back ass words, and that is this idea that the Old Testament is better than the New. 
And you see all this craving and desire to go back to the Old Testament, to live the dietary laws, uh, to speak the way they spoke, to think the way they thought, to engage in all this stuff that has passed away. Uh, in many of these groups, it's more important to do some kind of Seder meal, which is historically terrible and problematic anyway, than it is to have the Lord's Supper. I mean, that is literally the most theological backwards a person can possibly be, is to want to do an Old Testament Seder while having a symbolic and unimportant view of the Lord's Supper. You cannot be more backwards than that. So, I mean, in every way, on, <laughs> on multiple axes, uh, that's that might be peak stupid. So, when we face this temptation ourselves, like, wouldn't it have been awesome to be back in the day of David and see Goliath? Wouldn't it have been awesome to be back in the day of Moses and see the glory upon the temple? You know, those pe- those saints, if you were in front of them, would scold you and say, you've got far greater than we ever had. Pay attention to what Christ has actually given you. And all of this, of course, just goes to the fact that God knows how to tell a good story. Nobody tells a good story by doing all the cool stuff up front and doing the lame stuff and the lame and symbolic stuff at the end. Which is how American evangelicalism reads the scope. God is really important work back then, and now it's just all symbolic and lame. What an anticlimax. Well, if only we get back to the glory days. I don't know. That's peak blindness, I think. So we literally have the incarnate Christ in our midst, wherever two or three are gathered in his name. We have the temple itself of which the Salamnic and second temple were only types and foreshadows. We have the crucified and risen body and blood of Christ, and we enter that holiest of holies by partaking of the supper. That I mean, this is it. The only thing higher than this is what Revelation shows us and where we're going when we die and what the new heavens is. That's it. I mean, God knows how to tell a good story that climaxes, and that's where we're going, but we are in the penultimate point. It doesn't get any better. Okay. Yeah, please. The new building of the temple, I guess it goes without saying, but just to review make sure this is correct. The reason it hasn't been rebuilt is because Dome of the Rock is there, the Muslims have, so they want to rebuild it in the same location, but is that the idea? And they, they can't, so they just mm. want to build it somewhere else? Or? I, I don't know. I, I the idea, the biblical idea is it's been destroyed and God's done with it. And it's been superseded by the temple that is Christ's body of blood. So that even if, even if all the political circumstances emerged such that they could and did rebuild it, we ought to pay no attention. Right. right. But, but, but they're, but they're, they're, yeah. As to why, why they have to rebuild it. Do you think that's, yeah, I don't know. I mean, how long is, how, because, uh, how long has Islam been around since about the sixth century, seventh century? So what was their excuse before that? I mean, I, you know, I, I don't, not really interested in that, you know, whatever they think. The fact that there is God's judgment is sat upon that. The difference is that if, if that's true, then they're looking for the original location. They're, they're, it's all about the physical location. And you're saying wherever two, wherever two or three are gathered, that's the whole, it doesn't matter exactly where. Yeah. It could be anywhere. Christ identifies the new temple with his body. Um, and that is, uh, yeah, I mean, that is symbolically illustrated when the great curtain tears 
at the death of Christ, that, that Yahweh has left the building. There is a new temple now, and uh, that new temple is in the crucified and risen body of Christ, which is exactly what he says. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll build it back up. And he didn't stutter. Um, he was speaking about his own body. So it uh, doesn't matter what happens now to the old temple, whether it's re- whether it's, if, if it ever is resurrected. I, I highly doubt it, but if it is ever resurrected, You'd be a fool to go to that resurrected temple when you have the resurrected living body of Yahweh himself that you are invited to partake in. And that the whole world, by the way, is, I mean, think about it. You want to go to the temple, you'd have to book the trip out six months to a year in advance. You'd have to pay several thousand dollars. You'd have to, you know, you'd go and you'd go once and that was it. That was your time with Yahweh. What God has given us in Christ is so much more. He's made his temple span throughout every part of the globe so that it's accessible to any one of his royal priests at virtually any time. Wonderful, wonderful blessing of God and a true climax and telos of the cosmos that we're in. And this, I mean, really it is the climax and telos of this age. It's only penultimate because we know the next age is coming. Okay, Um, so that that takes us through this little mini section then. the purpose of the parables, uh, according to Jesus, via Matthew. Now, if you turn over to verse 18, you have the parable of the sower explained. Again, we did this in Mark, and there's nothing substantively different between the two. So I want to move on. Um, one of the things that you'll note that Matthew does, I, it's just kind of interesting by way of uh, literary style, is he does the parable of the sower, and then he does this tangent, the purpose of the parables. Then he goes back and has Jesus explain it, okay? We're going to see that he does the parable of the weeds, then he does a few other parables, and then he goes back and explains the parable of the weeds. So there's this kind of interweaving that Matthew does. Um, that we can see here. So let's take a look at the parable of the weeds, and we're going to walk through this, and let's just do it the way Matthew wants to do it. Let's not talk too much about the parable of the weeds. We'll notice some things, but we'll reserve our ultimate treatment of it for when the Lord explains it. Okay, so at verse 24 then, He put another parable before them, saying, uh, the kingdom of the heavens, or the kingdom of heaven, as translated in English, may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, an enemy came and sowed weeds, among the weeds, the word for uh, weeds there is zizania, and that can give us some indication. It's you know it's not one hundred percent certain, but it seems to be the case that um, zizania and wheat in the early stages of their growth are virtually indistinguishable. Now, I don't think that that's an essential part of this because the principle would be true even if that weren't, um, but it's probably the case. All right. So, and that would also be sort of like the conniving nature of the enemy too, to plant this weed that looks like the wheat. All right. Well, make of that what you will. So he does this and then he goes away. 
And then verse 26, so when the plants come up and bear fruit, carpon or grain, then the weeds appeared also. And that seems to kind of indicate that it wasn't, nobody could tell what was going on until this point where they start to bear their fruit and the grain, or excuse me, the wheat starts to bear good fruit and the weeds start to bear bad fruit. And that'll tie in very much with the way Jesus speaks of judgment is what you are is revealed in what you bear. Does that make sense? So you can point to what's born and see what you are. So in other words, foolish virgins, they've got no oil, but that's predicated upon the fact that five of them are wise and five of them are morons. Okay. You've got... Sorry, Chris. I didn't mean to make you snort there. So, um, yeah, you've got the good sheep and the bad sheep. You've got their works, but all of that's already to those that are on the right, only their good works are praised. Those that are on the left are only accused and condemned. But all of that's predicated on the fact that they are already lambs separated and put on the right and goats separated and put on the left, right? So this is the way Jesus does the judgment. And, of course, Good trees can only bear good fruit. Bad trees can only bear bad fruit, etc. Um, if we get into the categories Jesus is using, it all becomes just a wonderful, brilliant light. If we try to force Jesus' words into our own kind of 20th, 21st century categories, it makes a mess in our mind. So we want to embrace his categories on their own terms and understand them that way. So then you've got these two plants growing up. Probably they're not distinguishable, but when they bear fruit, they are. And with that appearance, I mean, again, this is kind of the theme of hiddenness. It's just being hinted at here, but that appeared is uh, a fane, the revealed or made manifest, appeared. So what was hidden before was the identity of what these are. And then suddenly it appears and is made manifest. So a mystery is revealed. And the mystery that's revealed is that not all of it is wheat. Okay. Verse 27, and the douloi, the slaves, tidied up nicely by our English translations, the servants, the slaves of the master of the house came and said to him, uh, Lord, curie, Lord, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, and oh, wait, he said to them, well, you see the father before the foundation of the world so ordained that some would be wheat and some would be weeds that I could burn the weeds for my everlasting glory. Nope. He said to them, an enemy has done this. Aha. So the servants, slaves, said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. So should we execute justice upon them right now? And the answer is no, lest you get it wrong. Or through doing that, 
it happens to damage even incidentally the wheat growing along with them. Verse 30, let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Okay, no explanation given at this point, but no doubt on the basis of the uh, the parable of the sower, as we call it, um, we can already make some connections in our minds as to what might be going on. I want to leave off too much discussion here until we get to our Lord's explanation of it, since that's part of... uh, part of Matthew's way of setting it before us. But I will just see if you have any thoughts at this point you want to entertain or any questions that pop up immediately from the text. You said something about the the whole double predestination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh A bit tongue-in-cheek, but Mm -hmm. is is this a text that is... That we could uh, use to uh, <laughs> double <laughs> I don't. I to tell you the truth. I'm just unaware if there's any serious person who like grabs a hold of this. But I do think that incidentally and kind of just poking fun, right. it makes that less less plausible. Yeah, this is not really a text I would grab a hold of if I was trying to convince a Calvinism that Cal, uh, Calvinist that Calvinism was wrong. Yeah, in seriousness. Yeah. Since you asked. Yeah, sure. Um, so when they gathered the weeds first and then burned them, uh-huh. it kind of um, is it the opposite of that idea of, or what is it that the rapture when people come and disappear first, who were good people? It seems like here that, you know, the people on the left side, or whatever, yeah, yeah. The, the goats or the weeds are gathered first. Yeah, yeah, it would be really hard. I mean, just as it would be really hard to fit Calvinism in here, and maybe yeah. that's more the argument, mm-hmm. it would be really hard to fit the rapture in here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you would be crowbarring those doctrines into this because they don't naturally fit. Mm-hmm. See, this is kind of weird. What I was going through just now, what really stuck out to me was the enemy is kind of this. So we could also come to the illusion of the enemy is if the one who placed these so-called weeds mm-hmm. in the church to do uh, the destruction. Mm. Now you said the church, which is an interesting question, and one I'd want to deal with in a minute when Jesus goes to interpret it, because throughout church history there have been two different reads on that, and they're both based on Jesus' explanation. <laughs> <laughs> If you take this too strictly as the church, what might you infer from Jesus' teaching? That you ought never engage in church discipline with anyone, lest you, in trying to remove a tear, uproot the wheat. What's the problem with that? Well, Matthew 13 is followed by Matthew 18, where he explicitly tells you not only to do this, but how to do this. Okay, so um, we can't read this as precluding church discipline. Um, How do we want to read it? Well, let's think about that as we hear Jesus himself interpreted in a minute, but I'm glad you brought that up. I know that wasn't your main point, but yeah, yeah. Okay, um, so on to the next parable then. 
he put another parable before them saying kingdom of the heavens and again kingdom reign you want to you want to think in those terms i think that that's really helpful the reign of heaven the rule of christ um that he is now brought to earth that's the right way to think of the kingdom or reign of the heavens is like a grain of mustard seed now i think I think we saw this in Mark already, so let me go quickly through this. Like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. So look at the similarity in themes here. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes uh, a tree, interestingly here. And a tree always ought to, at least in part, bring to our mind the tree of the cross, because that is the climax. Remember, the world, the fall into sin begins with a tree and ends with a tree. So it doesn't mean every reference to a tree is necessarily a direct reference, but it sure ought to at least put it somewhere in the back of your mind. Okay, so that all the birds of the heaven, I love this, come and... uh Make nes kataskenun. It's that same word um, where uh, the word became flesh and uh, skene dwelt, tabernacled among us. So now they are dwelling or tabernacling in that tree, that dendron here, um, in its branches. So again, I, I think that there are allusions here to the temple, to the crosses, and Christ as the temple etc. But that's not really the point. The point, again, is that hidden within that tiny little insignificant seed is an entire kingdom. And that's the way we reflected on that with the word in um, Mark's gospel. And it's true here as well. Um, But here, of course, in Matthew, really taking on that flavor of the mystery that how can you take this little tiny thing and from this little tiny thing comes this enormous thing okay and that in many respects then ties into the whole gospel christ this little tiny insignificant thing um coming person coming from nazareth what good can come from there and uh the whole world is changed and the church is created and likewise the proclamation of his gospel changes all things okay any uh any comments you want to make on there i know we already hit that with mark i don't want to overdo it it's just okay. you see the Old Testament over and over, so kind of you know like the tree you see like in uh, Nebuchadnezzar's little thing you see the tree it's grown real big and then the dream is that gets cut down the branches the animals scatter and all that but oh, the yeah. stump leaves and it, and then it also reminds me of this little seed the Jews remember because. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what God said. Hey, I will make Abraham a mighty nation. And then Solomon says, Hey, we have more than the seashore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The sea. So it came fulfilled twice. So we're seeing the same thing here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good point. And this is, um, yeah, in the same way we think of tree and we don't immediately go, aha, direct reference to the cross. We can't help but think, though, and that, and the same would be true here for seed. 
um, because it's the seed of the woman who's going to, it's the seed promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the seed, and now we have the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it's larger than all the garden plants. Now, you can think of the lowliness of Christ, how he was despised by his own people, obviously. The whole history of the Mm -hmm. all the stories. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. Thanks for pointing that out. Okay, on to the next, and I think new. Yes. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like, or excuse, yeah, yeah, yeah. The kingdom of the heavens is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now that's the end of that, um, that parable. So again, we have this small thing that does a, great thing. That's the idea of a little leaven going into the three measures of flour. I think um, the study note indicates it's probably 84 cups or as much as a woman could work at one time. I don't know how they had figured that out, but uh, they did. And so, um, yeah, that's what we have set before us. So there's kind of a, again, I I see a, a mystery or a hiddenness theme here as well as the small and great theme what you know what do you do with in the same way that the seed has to be hidden in the earth before it can be made manifest or revealed what it is so also the um and look at the language it's not right is it um the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and kneaded into the flour but what does it say Three measures. Yeah, okay, but what's the verb? And she took and hid. It's the wrong verb. You would ne- you would never say that, right? And that's what I mean by it's the wrong one. It's not, and that it sticks out because it's not what you would say in common speech. You wouldn't say you you, you, you know if you're saying like my wife put the, um, you, you would say she put the uh, leaven into the dough or into the measures of flour, not right? Yeah. yeah, not hit it that's a weird way of putting it and that's precisely the point that's a verbal cue that that's what we we ought to be considering here so this idea of hiddenness again it's gonna we're just gonna pick up steam with that even if it's quite a minor point um here in uh, verse 33 okay any commentary we want to make there? Yeah. The actual last stuff is the understanding that, that since it was Passover meal, it was unleavened bread. That's true, and that's where biblically leaven. I think maybe in all instances, except for this one, at least in the majority of them, is seen as a bad thing. Because leaven is seen as the Paschal bread, the Passover bread that then, of course, Christ takes and uh, manifests into his supper. But, um, yeah, so the unleavened bread being preferable to the leavened bread in that instance. So leaven, like St. Paul uses, it's like a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And he means like false doctrine and or um, impenitent sin tolerated within the church that kind of thing. So leaven, you, almost universally bad, uh, but here as something good. Yeah, because it says three, so it is naturally we assume it would be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
Yeah, I mean, if you're going to make kind of a typological connection, yeah, you you might certainly bring that out, and it would not surprise me in the least if that's what some ancient church fathers have done. That's what you put in the bread to make it right. Yeah, exactly right. So you also have that theme, don't you, Radford, that the seed goes down into the earth and comes up. It's almost a death and resurrection thing. The leaven is implanted within the dough and causes the whole dough to rise. So you have these like, you almost have these death and resurrection, hiddenness made manifest, expanding. You've got all these themes tied into these parables and again just hearkening back to jesus as recorded in mark jesus as recorded in matthew that's the nature of the parables remember they're the mysteria the mysteries so um i think again i just think that the best way to read the parable is try to look in context and see what the main point comparison would be sometimes that's hard because sometimes you can see two or three but there's usually a, a main point, and then there's all these other that are equally valid and equally good, and they just kind of expand out, causing you to think of all kinds of different things in regard to the kingdom that are revealed to us in the scriptures. And that's what we're doing, you know, and that's kind of the art and fun of a parable. And we really shouldn't uh, discourage that in any way. That's the nature of them as mysteria, as mysteries, ever expanding. Okay, so... Do we think of Christ then as the leaven? Yeah. That's the case. Again, on the bread, they kind of get out in a hurry. So, thank you. Don't forget that. Right. And then now, there's no hurry because it's all complete. Yeah. And so, you know, you can think in those is you're kind of having a like what I like to call a homiletical take as opposed to a strictly exegetical take. You're not taking something directly out of the text and saying this is exactly what the text says, right? But you're saying, hey, based on this and this, and if we kind of play with those ideas, we can conclude this. And that's all well and good. Just a different point than an exegetical point. It's a bit of a homiletical point. It's a reflection. And I think you can reflect on the scriptures in all kinds of different ways. I mean, um, we we see Paul reflecting on um, keeping the leaven away. Think of it in terms of keeping the leaven in on this basis. So let's play with those different themes. Pastor, if I may just make an observation. Please. Uh, it, I mean, because I bake bread. And, oh, yeah. uh, it's a nice hobby. But anyway, <clears throat> uh, leaven is, you can't see it, but it, they're spores. They're, it's microorganisms, and they're in the air. If you take flour and water and just set it in a bowl and let it be for 24 hours it'll pick up the spores from the air and it's and so and like the mustard seed that is so small uh the leaven is all around us it's there it's active but you can't see it it does its work without you even trying and to me that's just an interesting way of seeing how god works and the little things that he can you know make it and leaven expands the volume of the bread. So it's just tremendous what God does and how he uses the scripture and analogies and stuff through the parables. 
Just yeah. an option, my thought. Yes, absolutely. I, and I thank you for that. So this re, this just reminds me of sometimes a very helpful lens to look at, to look at these sections. I mean, to really look at all the Gospels, but especially these sections is, okay, we can look at it generally as royal priests. Um, the disciples were certainly the first of those. But these disciples were also the first of the uh, office bearers of the office of the holy ministry. If you look at it from through that lens, it takes on a different flavor, doesn't it? Um, that flavor is you're you're going to be you and your preaching, your word is going to be as the leaven, as the mustard seed. It's going to seem very insignificant while you're doing it, but in due time, you know, you don't put the seed to the ground and then next day there's this giant. In due time, it becomes that. I mean, just look at the ministry of these disciples. That's how in due time it spread globally. It didn't happen overnight. And same with 11. It takes time for it to uh, raise up the loaf. And so it just doesn't, the second you insert the 11, it's not like blows up like a balloon. And so that from a, from like, let's say a pastoral or a preaching standpoint, it's like an admonition to the pastors that, hey, when you're carrying on the work of the kingdom, it's going to look very insignificant. It's going to look like hiding the hiding the um, yeast in the dough of people's hearts. It's going to look like implanting that seed into the soil and waiting to see what comes. It's going to be, you know, uh, do, sowing these things into a world that appears to be indifferent and uh, and or hostile, right? And over time, because the power of the seed and the power of the yeast belongs to the Lord. It yields its abundance. And so there's great kind of encouragement and perspective in that regard, too, that as pastors, as church collectively, as we proclaim the word, that's often what's going to look like and feel like as we move about the business of the kingdom. Okay, so um, good. Anything else we want to? I see a hand. Gordon, please. Uh, Yeah, just to take uh, Keith's analogy to another level, um, when you're baking bread and it rises up, you then tend to beat it down and it rises again. <laughs> oh, nice. I like it. That's a great homiletical point for the history of the church. Yeah. <laughs> Just keep beating it down and up it goes. Yeah. Interesting with it being Making bread. That's who would have been making bread. Uh, men generally didn't have the luxury of doing that at that time. But uh, I'm not certain that that would be all of the significance, even if you wanted to kind of say, okay, I'm going to make a homiletical point about this being a woman and the church is uh, a woman. Um, you see that kind of also like the woman who we're going to hit these parables, but remember the lost sheep, of course, followed by the lost coin, followed by the lost boys. Uh, the lost coin, the character there is a woman and she's sweeping the house. Now, that's kind of her domain in that time and place. And I think it still is largely today. Uh, you know, go ahead and try to decorate the kitchen and see what happens. Leave a glass in the wrong place. Um, but anyway, so yeah, there there is sort of this historic reality. But we have, I mean, the church has often reflected on, yeah, the, the woman is kind of a type and icon of Christ, of course, but also of the church. 
So anytime you see the the female, you kind of reflect on those things, if not even in a secondary way. So I think that that's, yeah, a great observation. Thank you. Mm, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and that's, yeah. So, I mean, is it, is it Christ or is it the word? Yes. You know, <laughs> so um, yeah, exactly. And then you can find all kinds of applications there, all kinds of applications. I mean, you could, you could, in this sense, see the woman as the father hiding Christ in the earth with the sense that the earth is going to expand into the new heavens and the new earth. So, I, I mean, I think all of these are sort of homiletical or, uh, you know, ways of looking at it. You'd never like, you'd never set your heart on it and say, that's what the text is saying, but you would say that these are secondary reflections upon the text. And, and again, I'm encouraging this because I think as long as you're doing this in light of clear scriptures, you're not doing anything wrong. In fact, you're using the parable exactly as Christ intends it to be used as a mystery, as a mystery that ever unfolds and ever reveals different aspects and different truths. Um, you go astray if you go, well, I think it says this, and therefore I'm going to use this to contradict some part of scripture that's very plain and very clear. You know, like in the other one, I'm going to, you can't pull out the tares in the parable, so you can't do church discipline. Right. And, and then what have you just done? You've just torn Matthew 18 out. So that's maybe the limitation of these meditations is if they ever contradict some clear word or teaching of scripture, then you got to say, whoa, I went too far. Okay, good. So that takes us, um, you know, and then of course I won't do it, but you can kind of zoom out and say, how do these, how do these parables, including the initial parable of the sower with the different soils, how do they all tie together? What's the overarching theme of this episode or this um, <laughs> sermon series that the Lord is preaching here? And um, you can kind of gain different fruit in that regard too, as you, as you do it more broadly. Now, Flip with me um, over to 34, and now we're starting to get to uh, the heart. In fact, I didn't do this. I should have done this. You have the, okay, you have the sower. You have the weeds. You have the seed, and you have the leaven. There's four. Okay. And then you've got the treasure, the great value, the net, and I would argue also, yes, probably so. Probably the old and new treasures is one. That's a little debatable. But if you do, you've got four and four. You kind of have this this like macrochiasm. Um, that might be putting it a little too strongly. But what is the center and the hub? And that would be 34 through 35. So all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Now here he quotes a psalm. So this is probably Asaph, the prophet, um, who wrote Psalm 78. And of course, if you go digging around there, you might find out that it's actually one of the sons of Asaph because there's a chronological problem there. But either way. I will open my mouth in parables. Wait a minute. Who's the I? Christ specifically, right? He's the one doing the prayer. So how does, how does Jesus, 
let me put it this way. Who does Jesus think that Psalm 78 is speaking about? Himself. So here's a clear example where Jesus is saying the Old Testament scriptures speak of me. And here he doesn't even make that case. It's just assumed. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. Jesus is saying, I'm that I of whom the psalmist speaks. Is I will. Prophets using parables? What's that? The other prophets. No testament. There are some rare examples, and maybe the most famous one with David. Remember um, the sheep, the man who has all the sheep, and he goes and steals the poor man's one ewe lamb. That would be an example of an Old Testament parable. Um, and I think that there are some others. I right off the top of my head, but they're not they're not common. It's really interesting how the parables basically are talking about the material world, mm-hmm. and Jesus is, of course, using the material world. That it's easy to see mm-hmm. to explain the spiritual world. Yes, yes. And there's many times in in, in religion, I think we get those confused of the, mm. the spiritual aspect and the material aspect of what we read. Mm. Okay. And that, that's looking at <clears throat> particularly my mapping of Genesis. But anyhow. Mm. The, there is there's one time in history where the material and the spiritual come together. Mm, and what would that be? Christ. Uh, He's the embodiment of, the, of God. I, I mean, I, I think I see your point, but I'm just uncomfortable with the idea of that being the only time because I'm not sure that that category holds, but I do see your point nonetheless, that in the incarnation of Jesus, there's something special that happens and there's a unique and unparalleled combining of divinity and creation in the person. I should like to say the spiritual, you know, and the material, and there are ways that this one tries to reflect another or try to learn about the spiritual from the material. And sometimes when we're discussing issues, we I think we get confused. What is spirit of, you know, like Nicodemus, you know, they you said you're going to be born again, you know, and he got that really confused. <clears throat> so I'm just I'm just making the, the point that there are two there are two issues that are going on in parallel, <clears throat> and at one point in time in history, hmm. they come together. Well, I have to think about that a little bit more. Yeah. Um, I'll get it. Right. Yeah, I'll have to think about that a little bit more. I mean, of course, because the entire, the entire, um, okay, take these two point, data points in scripture. Uh, John 1 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Okay, now go back to, he's obviously playing because in our K is exactly how the Septuagint begins, not with Bereshith Bara, but uh, with um, in our K, in the beginning. Um, in Genesis 1, you have in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, etc. But then the, you have the spirit hovering over the face of the deep. So you have God, you have the spirit, okay? but where do you have the sun? Let's material. Then God said, let there be light. In the beginning was the 
word and the word was with God and the word was God. In other words, all the way back at the beginning. So then the creation of all material of everything physical is done through the word and the word is who? Christ. So it becomes at that level impossible to make a distinction between spiritual and physical because the one who is God is the one through whom all things were made and without him was not anything made that was made to go a little further in John's uh, introduction there in his gospel. Uh, now, can, can a naturalistic understanding of the world that blinds one to the spiritual realities uh, lead one astray. Yes. And in many ways, that is a theme, a sub theme in John's gospel, because you have the woman at the well, for example, saying, Hey, give me some of this water that I don't have to ever come back here again. Right. Um, and then you've got, uh, of course, yeah, Nicodemus, what do I have to crawl back up in my mom's womb? You know, so you've got these sorts of things through going through John's gospel, but that's more like a misunderstanding and inability to grasp the deeper reality at hand. But the nature of the cosmos, you don't want to make it a bifurcation there because everything was made through Christ. And that becomes that becomes vastly important, by the way, to how you view creation. Because if you just go, this material, this has nothing to do with God. You, I mean, you've lost the plot. Um, God is in all things and through all things and all things were made for him. And there's a distinction between creator and creation that needs to be upheld, but everything is spiritual in that sense. Everything proceeds from the mouth of God, right? Whether it's physical truth or spiritual truth. And there you see a distinction that we've made that is really, frankly, artificial. It all proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. You see, you can talk about these two revelations where the church fathers, like two books or two words, or two revelations, um, that which you can see and that which you can't, um, that which is uh, the book of the natural revelation and the book of the special revelation that um, God says, uh, live not by sight, but by faith. So you've got those two revelations. Okay, yeah, please. Just thinking around, you two things came to mind when you were just speaking, and you think when God breathed life into the dirt and created Adam. Would you accept that as the spiritual and physical coming together? The, the spirit, spiritual created the physical. Because the breathing of life yeah. into it, it, it was together. 13.8 yeah. billion years ago, there was nothing. And all of a sudden, bang! You know? And and that came from something. <laughs> there was something before the big bang. There was, there was a spirit. There was some intelligence for some reason, some force. That was God. Well, Radford, we've we've left the realm of biblical theology because the Bible says nothing about those things. And this is a Bible class. So um, so far-flung theories about the origin of the world on turtles' backs or loud explosions or any other uh, pagan nonsense we're going to have to leave aside. I understand the pain of breakup and the parable of the weeds explained. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it fast. Let's we're obviously gonna run a little over time. Thank you, Al. Um, we're gonna run a little over time. So if you gotta depart, anybody physically you gotta depart, feel free to. Anybody online, you gotta depart, feel free to. Hey, let's get the let's get the parable of the weeds in from the Lord. Verse 36. Then he left the crowds. Shoot, I forgot though. Sorry, I gotta do this real fast, Al. I will look at the verse prior. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been 
kekrumena, hidden since the foundation of the world. So that revelation of what's been hidden from the foundation of the world, that's really, I think, the linchpin of this entire section. Okay, then he left the crowds and went into the house. Now, notice the familiarity there, by the way, the house. In one place, it's even called his house. I think that's in Mark's gospel. The idea that Jesus was like a homeless vagrant or panhandler sleeping under a bridge or begging for coin is just completely false. Okay. Uh, He wasn't rich, but he had a roof over his head. He had clothing on him. Okay. So I just want to point that little detail out. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. They assumed they got the other ones. Probably not. (laughs) He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Now, here's the particular challenge, or here it begins. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. So who creates and plants and nurtures and matures the sun? It's all, I mean, it's very monergistic. It's all the son of God who does this thing. Okay. All right. What about the weeds? The weeds are the sons of the evil one. Now notice the language, sons of the kingdom, sons of the evil one. That's it. In all the world, there's two lineages. There's two generations vertically understood, which by the way, when Jesus says, um, uh, all these things will take place before this generation passes away. We always, you know, think like uh, horizontal generation, kind of one after another. But Luke almost always uses generation as um, a generation, like um, so sons of the evil one or sons of God. So that I, if you read it that way, it's more like all these things will happen before the sons of the evil one are taken away. And that will be the end of the sons of the evil one would be more that way to understand what Jesus is saying. So we'll leave that for another time, but you've got two sons. This is very, this should take us back to our study in John very much where you've got, uh, you know, ek to theu, out of God or out of the evil one, sons of the kingdom, sons of the evil one. Okay. So then um, Jesus says in verse 39, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Great. So now we've got the son who is responsible for the sons of the kingdom and the devil who is responsible for the, for his own sons in the world. And in the world is what's governing it so far, as opposed to in the church. The harvest is the close of the age. Again, that ties in nicely with the field being the world. This is a, This is cosmic in scope as opposed to narrow. And the reapers are angels. Okay, so now we know that the angels are going to have a role in the end of the age. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. Namely, the sons of the evil one will be gathered and tossed into the fire. But the sons of the evil would be the gods. Yes. And the, yeah. The sons of the evil would be the gods. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that that's a safe answer is yes. Okay. um, The son of man, verse 41, will send his angels and they will gather 
out of his kingdom. Now, this is a verse that causes many church fathers to read this as the church. It's probably a mistake, too, because they're thinking of his kingdom as being the church, whereas his kingdom is now cosmically viewed as the entire world because it's the end of the age. He's taking it as his own. That's the way to reconcile that with the world. But because Augustine, at least, and and others, I think before him, I think Ambrose does the same thing, but all it takes is Augustine to get something wrong and virtually everybody else does because uh, they follow him in that. And so I think Augustine in particular sees this here as a referent to the church. It's not, it's a referent to the world. Okay, so out of his kingdom, out of the world, um, the son of man sends his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of not just sin, but scandala, which is almost always the word for um, uh, apostasy. Okay. Now, it's true enough that sin applies. And yes, obviously, he's going to remove all sin and all causes of sin and everything else. Okay, But it's really like even I, I think it's more deep than that. I think it's anything that take turns one away from God. We're not just talking about like petty sins here. We're talking about the essence. Okay, and all lawbreakers is um, all all who practice. This too is parallel with the way John speaks, but all who practice, all who are workers of uh, anomia, lawlessness. So it's it's different than all lawbreakers, frankly, even though I, you can arrive at the same. Um, it's not just all lawbreakers, but it's all who do lawlessness, which I think is a little bit more profound, a little bit more deep again. So sin and lawbreakers is true. It's just a little more shallow than scandala and those practicing anomia. I mean, these are those latter terms really emphasize the complete rebellious nature against God and against his son and articulate then what it means to be um, a son of the evil one, to be in scandala and to be one who works anomia lawlessness okay so what's he going to do again the son of man is going to send his angels they're going to gather out of his kingdom all causes of scandala and all workers of anomia lawlessness and throw them into the fiery furnace so we're talking about people here um you could maybe include the demonic forces as well but that it doesn't quite seem to be in view because of the throwing into the fiery furnace that's analogous to the weeds being tossed in the fire in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, so we've, you know, again, not likely that we're talking about demons here because they've got eyes to weep and teeth to gnash. Um, furthermore, we see a kind of, um, when you go into hell, you don't like, it's not annihilation. You don't cease to exist. You exist in a state of uh, suffering, of, of sorrow, that's weeping, and of anger, that's gnashing of teeth. Regretful anger is usually gnashing of teeth. So regret. Yeah, I think that's the best word for it. And that recurs in Jesus. So sorrow and and like angry regret, bitterness, gnashing of teeth. Okay, then the righteous. Now, who's that parallel? Well, the sons of the kingdom planted by the son of man. The righteous will shine like the sun. Elsewhere in scriptures, of course, Christ is likened unto the sun his shining we will shine like the sun so the natural state of the righteous is to shine like the sun is that a is that a i mean here you go is that a spiritual shining or a physical shining (laughs) yes 
And it kind of, I, I won't go into the whole theory here. One of these days I will with you all, but uh, uh, my, my sort of theory of the transfiguration is that that wasn't Jesus doing a divine thing. That was Jesus doing a human thing. That that's essentially what it means to be human. And to be resurrected and raised as Christ has been resurrected and raised will be to shine as Christ shines. And it, and that, if you want to get really technical about it, that, that, that shining of man is precisely what was removed when Adam and Eve said, I think we're naked. Okay. So they will shine like the sun in the kingdom. Of and this is such beautiful language. I mean, this is stunning language. These these words put together, especially the last two here in English, their father, are. I mean, if we really understood them, it's like the earth just cracked in half. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That Christ, the Son of God, becomes a son of man that sons of men might become sons of God and call upon him as their father. That's Athanasius theology. And it's really, really easy to gloss over the profundity of that. Okay, so not weeping, not gnashing teeth, but shining like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's where we're going. That's our destiny. That's our fruitfulness. You know, fruitfulness even above and beyond like good works is really revealed here. It The fruitfulness of the fields isn't doesn't just mean, hey, you help more ladies across the street than you used to. Um, I'm not really trying to make fun of good works or knock them per se, but I am saying that eschatological fruitfulness that is ultimate in Jesus' parables is precisely this that there become many sons of the Father and that we all shine like the sun under the ages of ages, glorifying him and delighting in his uh, in the beatific vision. That's ultimate fruitfulness, eschatological fruitfulness. Okay, he who has ears, let him hear. Do we get through it? Okay. Any parts stick out that uh, that are still questionable or irritating? Yeah, it's not questionable or irritating, but this reminds me a little bit of Paul's language. It sort of reminds me a little bit of the discussion about spiritual and physical. Okay, yeah. Paul's language, uh, the the resurrected body, he refers to it as a spiritual body. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. 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 That's fun. That's really fun. Yeah, it's so true. So, so, so you're saying that the transfiguration is really a, 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 a spiritual body of Christ in essence, but the resurrected body of Christ, is that what you're saying? Or you're, you're, you're saying something different? Well, it would take me a minute to sort through all okay. the categories, make sure I'm perfectly orthodox on all that. But yeah, I think what I think, I think more than revealing his divinity in that moment mm-hmm. is he's revealing the final state of humanity. Humanity standing in the presence of the Father with all the saints. Um, that's kind of my hunch. And even if that's not the case of the transfiguration, I can easily just say, okay, I don't need that. I've got this to show that the natural state of humanity and its perfection is to shine like the 
son. I'm just tying in the transfiguration for fun because I think that that's what he's really doing there. But if I'm wrong there, it doesn't defeat my point. No. Pastor, how about uh, Moses' face shining and having to wear a veil? Exactly. Thank you, Brad. Exactly. Moses is doing what's natural to human beings when you're in the presence of God. That's what's going on. Yeah. He's a prefigurement and a foretaste of that. To see God is to shine with the light of God. How can you not? I mean, it's like getting, it's like getting lit on fire. It's like, I don't know, it's like being a twig. When you get close to fire, you're going to light up. To see God and to see the one who literally is light is to be enlightened. It's just, you can't help it. As, as, there's no other. That's how it is. So, yeah, that's the uh, – thank you, Brad. That's a, uh-huh. a, a beautiful, beautiful example. By the way, I also think the same is true for walking on water. I think the same is true for almost all the miracles of Christ. I don't want to get into too technical of an argument, but he's more showing us what it means to be man than what it means to be God. What it means to – remember Genesis 1? He gives them what? Dominion, lordship, dominus, to be as he is on earth, to be gods on earth is what he gives. And that's what we fall away from through the lie of the devil. when he says, hey, you want to really be gods? They already were gods. (laughs) Um, And it was their natural course of action. By the way, I get all this from Luther and he gets a lot of it from Irenaeus. But that's what Luther says. Luther says that man, when he was, Adam, when he was created, was stronger than a lion, could see further than an eagle. And and was smarter than any other animal. Obviously, we know that, but um, that's how that's how Luther sees it as the pinnacle. And um, even if not true in a literal sense, true in the sense that um, he could walk on water and do whatever he, and just simply command the animals. And if he really wanted to ask the eagle what he saw, he could tell him he couldn't see better. So, you know, Luther's point, even if not technically true, which it may be, um, is has that kind of more profound truth to it. That's at the essence, by the way, of um, Adam naming the animals as well as his lordship over them. Um, you name your children, right? So, yeah, that cool thing. Okay, well, we could go on and on. So uh, thank you, men, for your patience. And uh, thank you for the opportunity to reflect on God's word with me. Let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Gentlemen online, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for your input and comments. Appreciate thank it. Thank you, Pastor. Thank yep. you so much. Blessed Advent to you all. Yeah, that is a that is a good question. If you want to hang out for one second, we're we're talking schedule real quick. Um, I, with Advent and Christmas coming up, let's see what we want to do. Uh, we've got the nineteenth. I'm I'm game to meet on the nineteenth, unless we don't want to. Is there any conflict? No, for me. Okay, but I want you to redo everything on the, what you just said in more detail. Okay, let's do it. When we get back on the 19th, let's go back through the explanation real briefly. Um, no, not very briefly. Oh, oh, in depth? Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's true, because Jesus lays out an entire eschatology there that we've just kind of glossed over. We could really go into some detail there. So. I, I thought we were taking a break after this, this week to I power through it. Yeah. I just kind of lost track of time. Do I mean, we can certainly take a break. I, I have to take a break on the 26th and on the 2nd. 
So let's plan to be on the 19th. Yeah. Why not? And then uh, we'll take off the 26th and 2nd. Okay. All right. Very good. Thanks, gentlemen. See you guys. Bye-bye.